Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This uh, Monday, May 14th, broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. So there, we're going to talk about the uh, Latino, the growing crowd of the uh, grow, growing cloud of the Latino community, not just here in Iowa but across the country. We'll also talk about the um, raid, the ICE raid, at a factory in a small town in southeast Iowa. That's big news, not just here but around the country. We'll also talk about the upcoming First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March. What's that about? We'll tell you more when we get to that segment of the show. Also going to kind of ream the corporate media a new one because of their coverage of of various stories. But in particular today, the um, bogus study that says that we ought to be feeding our babies pureed pork. Anyway, that's that's a fascinating um, departure from... Uh, truth. Maybe Trump should be calling it fake news. Anyway, also, we're going to talk a bit about how American streets have become more deadly for pedestrians. Bad news. So that's coming up. Right now, though, we're going to welcome uh, Yeshi Tsomo to the program to talk about the Freedom School 360. Hello, Yeshi. Welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I just wanted to say my name is Demita Brown. Okay. And you you know me more by my Facebook name, but uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, you put it on Facebook, and I'm likely to think that's your name. But hey, welcome to the show, Demita, and uh, tell us about the uh, Freedom School 360. This sounds uh, an inter- like an interesting way to highlight the importance of uh, civil rights. Yes, it, it is, and I'm really happy that um, you know you're covering a lot of the things that are going on with the Latino community and other communities impacted by ICE. Um, The Freedom School 360 is very much about taking a panoramic view, that's why we put the 360 there, around civil rights issues today and the concerns that the immigrant communities are facing are going to be represented there. So it's, it's very important to look at the civil rights movement in terms of the way it has impacted a lot of different communities the Latino communities, the Muslim community, African immigrant communities, Caribbean communities, South American communities. So um, that's a very important issue for civil rights, Mm -hmm. and our intersectional approach um, accommodates that. And uh, is this this done through the uh, school system itself? No, this is a very much a community-based education project. Okay. And it's local organizations who recognize the need for this kind of conversation and to kind of like get together and compare notes and let the wisdom of our history inform us as we go forward with social justice. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's, it, you would think sometimes I would think that uh, every constituency group affected by discrimination and the denial of civil rights would automatically be, you know, lining up to support, you know, each other. And I, I found that wasn't the case. Sometimes it's not the case. I mean, I, I found when I when I represented, you know, the uh, urban core of Des Moines, and um, you know, a lot of my African American constituents who were very, you know, very supportive of uh, most of my work representing them, weren't happy that I was also advocating for full equality for LGBT citizens, and that mm-hmm. that that bothered me. Um, we've, uh, I mean, I mean the the LGBT community is faring better nowadays than it had been for a long time. Uh, there's still certainly issues, but uh, I've always thought that, you know, what can we do to build those connections so that people who are victims mm-hmm. of discrimination understand that they need to stand with other people 
who may not look like them or, or you know, think like them exactly, but they're also on the short end of the civil rights. Uh, uh, civil rights. That's exactly right. And I feel like this, this particular school, Freedom School 360, is happening this July. It'll start July 18th, and there'll be a three-day program for adults. And then from July 21st through July 28th, there's a program for teenagers ages 13 to 18. And it's really important um, to build solidarity right now. Um, and sometimes we take that for granted, that that solidarity is going to be there. But really, we've never really um, been able to rely on that. It always is something that we have to actually get together and talk about the overlapping concerns. Um, the Native American sovereignty issues, um, environmental issues and environmental racism that overlap from the Native community, especially the way they have been fighting the pipelines right now and being water protectors. Right. Um, that, that is something that affects all of us, but they deserve the solidarity of other communities making sure we show up for them, you know, in, in that struggle. Because it affects all of us. Like, we look at the water issues in Detroit, you know, who's being affected by that? Poor people, people of color. And th that's a direct overlap with the water issues with the Native community right now. Um, and, and obviously, uh, there are other connections between, um, there, there are numerous historical examples of cooperation and solidarity, whether it's supporting the strike, the, you know, uh, the workers' movements in California that the Latino community initiated. You know, when you, do you remember that? The United Farm Workers, um, like, particularly like the great strike. Yeah, strike oh yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was a little, little bit before my time, but I certainly know about it from, from history. Uh, right. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. you know, you know, I, it's a before your time, yeah, but it's a historical example that I'm pointing to. Yeah. Um, that we do have these positive examples, but that had to be cultivated. People had to talk to each other, and they had to... So coming together for Freedom School is a way of people letting that percolate and letting that conversation emerge. So will this be a, a several days of, uh, of, of classes, discussions? What, what would the uh, format look like for people who might be interested? That's a really good question. So one of the things we're doing is we're cultivating certain leadership skills, and basically that has to do with using contemplative and creative practices to help people connect with their own sense of wisdom and their own sense of their own capacity to be led internally so that people can speak their own truth um, in whatever situation they may find themselves. Then we're doing some history of freedom schools, um, including the Highlander School um, that started before, well before the Civil Rights Movement. But that was a place where a lot of civil rights activists and organizers did their training. You know, they provided training and they received training at the Highlander School. And then the, the Freedom Schools in the 60s, especially mm -hmm. particularly the ones in 64, um, were very much focused on integrating the vote in Mississippi. Right. But those schools um, took off in different forms across the country. So um, we're looking at that history and that strategy as a way of saying we need to educate ourselves about what our movements need and what our communities need. Yeah, so this is a, this is a program for people all across the country. You're reaching out, I, I, I presume, beyond Iowa City. Well, there are different examples of freedom schools across the country. This one is primarily focused on the Midwest, but of course everyone is welcome. Right, sure. Yeah, and you know, and speaking of uh, you, you mentioned Detroit and or, or uh, rather Flint, Michigan, the 
the uh, water crisis there that primarily impacted low-income uh, people. What, what I found when, when we walked across the country in 2014 with the Great March for Climate Action is most of the uh, places where there was a direct climate impact, whether it was, well, uh, you know, whether it was um, uh, a water issue or, um, or building of a fossil fuel uh, plant, a refinery, or extraction, you know, most of these occurred on land that either belonged to, you know, Native Americans or in the case of uh, most pointedly uh, of the Gary, Indiana, Whiting, uh, South Chicago, that area. Again, primarily racial minority communities. And, you know, it became really clear that, you know, these these decisions are not accidental. You know, we yes. the, the 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 targets of environmental injustice and of sacrificial zones relevant to our, you know, our commitment to fossil fuels and exacerbation of the climate crisis, they almost always happen in areas where you've got minority constituencies, people regarded as low income and with a low impact on the political process without a voice. And so I think, you know, the more we can draw connections between those communities and to people who may not be immediately affected but are empathetic and understand the importance of standing with folks in those kind of situations, that's really important. So I, I think what you're doing is is very uh, is highly commendable. Yeah, you know, and I also wanted to point out you're exactly right. Um, a really big push for the Freedom School this year is to make sure that we make space to support the leadership and help develop the leadership of young people. We've seen them come out and do some really amazing things in the last several months around gun violence. Mm, and yes. they've gotten involved in Black Lives Matter. They've gotten involved in a lot of different movements. Um, and I think a really important part of our role in the generation I'm from is to support what they identify as priorities right. and help them develop their leadership. So focusing on the Freedom School this year is very much about making sure that awareness is, is recognized and listened to because uh, there are some really sharp young people in this community, and they need to be heard. That's a, that's a, a good reminder. So if folks want to learn more about the uh, Freedom School 360 or perhaps even register, where do they go? Well, one place you can go is the Beloved Community Initiative website, and you can register if you're an adult. There's a, one program you can click on to register for that, and if you're a teen, you can register on the same site but a different program. And you can also email me at midwesttelegraph at gmail.com. And I think it's a really – and also check out the Facebook page for Midwest Telegraph because we try to keep as many of these intersectional issues as possible right at the forefront of what we post there. Okay. Very good. Again, midwesttelegraph.com, you said? No, Midwest Telegraph on Facebook or BelovedCommunityInitiative.com. Got it. Okay, great. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Demita. Appreciate it, and appreciate the hard work you're doing on some very uh, challenging and important work. Thanks for your work, Ed, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, folks, when we come back from a short break here, we're going to talk about the Latino community's growing clout and about uh, an event coming up here in Iowa. Again, Iowa which just happens to be the first state in the nation to vote in the presidential uh, election. Uh, we'll be uh, talking about uh, a um, significant event here that uh, might, again, play well as the uh, caucuses begin to uh, become more prominent and we get closer to that moment in uh, early 2020 when uh, Republicans and Democrats will gather to uh, decide who 
to nominate. Hey, and thanks to the uh, stations around the country that rebroadcast this program. And uh, if you'd like to hear a uh, a podcast from the show, you can always check it out on the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. That podcast will be up later today. And again, the show runs at various times and, and on various stations across the country. Uh, and if you have any questions, uh, you're always welcome to contact us at ed at FallonForum.com, ed at FallonForum.com. All right, so again, later in the program, we'll be talking about the ice raid in Mount Pleasant. We'll be talking about the First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March coming up later this summer. We'll also talk about the uh, bogus study that says that we've got to feed pork to babies if we want them to grow. Crazy stuff. And we'll talk about how U.S. streets are unfortunately becoming more dangerous places, in particular for pedestrians. But now, in the studio with me is Rob Barron. Rob Barron's with the Latino Political Network. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. And you've got a you've got a, an event coming up here that sounds an awful lot like a prelude to the madness that's known as the Iowa caucus season. Well, is that fair enough? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yeah, I suppose. Uh, so, so the Latino Political Network is a, a, a nonpartisan nonprofit focused on. Uh, preparing Latinos in Iowa to run for office, and we've been around for about three years, and and now that we've we've got our legs under us a little bit, we're having a um, an event for the first time, which will really be a recognition of those Latino elected officials in Iowa. Uh, just about every time we we do an event, it's it's about the largest gathering of Latino, Latino elected officials in Iowa so history. So they get bigger all the time. Yeah, they do. Great. And uh, and so this Saturday we'll have uh, a bunch of folks in at uh, Luca Restaurant in downtown Des Moines from five to seven on Saturday an night. An Italian restaurant. Yeah, it is. But Latino gathering in an Italian restaurant. I, I like the cross cultural uh, yeah, connection yeah. there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> uh, but um, but we'll be we'll be recognizing those folks, and then we're going to bring in a guy named uh, Tony Vargas, who's a state senator from Nebraska, and he's going to be our keynote speaker and. Uh, there's a lot of significance there because Iowa's never elected a Latino to the state legislature. Yes. That, I mean, and, and Iowa, you know, it's not like I mean, we've, we've elected um, African-Americans, uh, mm-hmm. uh, East Indian mm-hmm. woman, uh, yep. Swati Dantikar, uh, a Bosnian woman. Mm-hmm. Correct. And so uh, why is that? Why is the legislature not yet elected a Latino? Uh, yeah, and, well, why, why, let me rephrase. Why have people not yet elected a Latino to the legislature? I, yeah, I think that there's there's a number of different ways of looking at it. There's no one thing. Uh, so Latinos make up about 6% of the population in the state. Which is a, a significant growth. Yep, definitely. Uh, and uh, uh, fairly recent uh, uh, immigrants to, to this country. So um, still getting our feet underneath us to a certain degree and, and climbing the ladder. Um, but if you look at why why that hasn't happened in the legislature yet, I, I'd point to a couple things. One is there aren't that many seats that are actually up every year. You know, there's always you know all hundred legislators, all hundred House members' seats are always up, but you know a lot of them are are not very competitive. Right, and it's hard to unseat an incumbent. And so you get folks that run. You know, for instance, Storm Lake, Denison. Those are areas that are real large pockets of Latinos, but they're in the middle of a district that's very rural and yeah. and, and the rural kind of swamps the the, the town. Uh, yeah, so because in Storm Lake, that's a town where I believe 80% of the the K-12 through students are of Latino heritage. That may very well be true, yeah. And and so Storm Lake's a good example. So there's a, uh, a Latina named Sarah uh, Monroy Huddleston who ran for state legislature last year. 
her last cycle, and she didn't win. However, she won the city of, of Storm Lake and, 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 uh, and did quite well there, but then was kind of swamped everywhere else. And she was a three-term city council person, so somebody From Storm Lake. Yep. Mm-hmm. But see, here's where the LPN comes in. Is, That's the Latino political network. Yes. So here's where our work comes in is, is you know, we need to get people running for school boards and city councils and, and people serving in those in those roles so that they can build their way up uh, into state legislature or statewide office or Congress or things like that. Uh, but, you know, if you only have, you know, in the state probably about 20, 25 Latino elected officials in Iowa and they're all the highest one is at a countywide office – then you know, you've, you don't have a lot of folks who are then going to take the next step to run for a state legislature right, right. And, and be ready for that. And to be clear for the folks who might be outside of Iowa, that one thing Iowa does not have is a system that allows gerrymandering. We're, we're fortunate. Well, except at, at, at the county level at the, in the larger counties. But statewide, we don't have gerrymandering. So that's not the problem here. I could see how it might be a problem somewhere else where, right. where a state legislature dominated by – you know, white rural Republicans would make sure that there was never a chance, not just for a Democrat to win a certain seat, but for, you know, minority constituencies. But that doesn't happen here. No, it it doesn't. Although I think our state does have to be thinking about, you know, with the next round of redistricting redistricting coming up is how well minority populations are represented in the legislature. Well, again, Latinos are 6 percent of the population. Correct. 0 percent. 0 percent of the legislative population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we got to think about it. And this is statewide. I mean, we just have to think about how how well informed the decisions that our legislature, or you know, if you're if you're just looking at your city, you know, our city uh, government, how well informed those decisions are by all the folks that that make up that state or that community. And that's what we're trying to do, really, is just promote more voices that aren't being heard out in positions yeah. of power right now. There's a lot of folks in the in the majority constituency in, in in the uh, in the white constituency, let's say that that will regard anybody who is of Latino descent as being an immigrant of the first, I mean, immediately, that they, they assume you just crossed the border. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, what, third generation? Yeah, third or fourth. Yeah. Third or fourth. You're, so you've been here longer than my family. Yeah. yeah. And that's <laughs> Mine the, came over in the 1920s. I'm second generation. Well, so the Mexican yeah. side of my family, yeah, we, um, we came over before World War II. My grandfather fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, we came over to do... Um, uh, uh, to work in the in the shipping, you know, loading freight at, mm-hmm. in the in the docks over at, in the Valley Junction area in, in oh, West really? Des Moines. Yeah, oh yeah, huh. that's where that's where most of the Mexicans settled in the first half of the 20th century. Huh, that's news to me. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you find, I mean, part of it has been uh, obviously people aren't citizens; they can't vote. Right. But more and more Latinos are becoming citizens. But my impression is that even some who are citizens are afraid to get too politically active because of the potential for pushback. Well, there's some cultural uh, hindrance there too. You know, the, the countries a lot of folks come from. You know, politics is not as as participatory as is here. Yeah, politics can result in you getting killed mm-hmm. in some places. But also, some of it too is you know what's what's the incentive to to get engaged? Uh, you know, if you don't feel like your voice is going to be heard out, whether because the folks that are sitting in those bodies don't look like you or represent you, or just because the stuff they're talking about is not uh, relevant to your life. And what's the what's the 
what's the value in taking that time out right. from your family, sure. from everything that's going on, to go get engaged? So answer that question for us. <laughs> so start so start running more people from the community. Yeah. And then you're going to start seeing more people engaging in politics, more people going out and knocking doors and helping to support those folks and voting. Right. That's where it starts. Yeah, and you'll see policy you know, d- decisions that are markedly different than some of what we've been seeing, I mean, to an extreme extent this past year. I think so. I mean, I, I, I think that, listen, I think, you know, as an Iowan, and, you know, you've been here for a long, you just said how long you've been here, and, you know, my family's been here for a long time. I just want government to work well. And I feel like government works best when we have a lot of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we don't necessarily get that just by closing our eyes and every two or four years hoping that that happens you have to work it that's why uh you know things like the cat center up at uh, iowa state university work to get women elected to office because women are underrepresented in the legislature right. and other right. other fields we have to do things like this yeah. and that that hasn't that has improved somewhat somewhat and there was always you know there's always been a, there was a long time concern here in iowa that we were one of what two states that had never elected a woman to uh, the office of governor or U.S. Senate, mm-hmm. and then we did. And now a lot of the people who were uh, eager for that to happen aren't so happy anymore <laughs> because we elected <laughs> Governor Kim Reynolds, who just signed the most restrictive uh, anti-abortion law in the country, and Senator Joni Ernst, uh, famous for castrating pigs and being uh, pretty much uh, a an ally of Steve King. So, uh, yeah, how do you uh, – I mean, and like you said, some balance, you know, a variety of perspectives is good, but mm-hmm. – Sometimes these perspectives are pretty extreme. I mean, Steve King is noted nationally as being uh, being a, a, an extremist among extremists, especially with his views regarding Latinos. Yes. And, um, you know, how do you – it seems like maybe it's a matter of – just a matter of time and continued effort before at some point that perspective fades away in, in, the, in the, the books of history. And at some point someone will read that 50 years from now and say, wow, that guy really existed. Wow, those, those people really had that opinion. But uh, from the viewpoint of people who are living today and suffering and being affected by bad policies, we want change as quickly as possible. Absolutely. And and that's okay. I mean, that, you want to have that energy. You want to get people fired up and engaged and, and, and in, the, in the public sphere. Uh, and just because somebody gets elected, and whether it's you know, a couple hundred thousand people or a couple thousand people, uh, just because they get elected doesn't mean that they represent all those people. Yeah, we've certainly seen that. So, and, you know, again, you're with the Latino Political Network. Yes. And uh, the event coming up here in Des Moines next week? This Saturday. This Saturday, right. This Saturday, the, the 19th, from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock in uh, Luca in the East Village of Des Moines. And uh, we'll have uh, food and drink. Uh, tickets are uh, – it's a fundraiser, so tickets are for sale on Eventbrite. You can get there on our website from lpniowa.com or on our Facebook page. And uh, and it's twenty five dollars a, a ticket. There's food and drink, and uh, and plenty of good people. There, we're expecting a really great crowd. Great. All right. Well, and again, this is uh, we probably won't be hearing the, this. This is probably not the last we'll hear from you and the political Latino political network with the caucuses coming up. And, well, I hope not. Yeah. It, you know, it, um, you know, this is this is an Iowa thing. But every, you know, when all these caucus folks come around every four years, it's an opportunity for organizations like like mine to. You know, work with them. There's gonna, there will be, and I've talked to a couple of them. There will be Latinos running for president in this next cycle. So this is an opportunity for them to come out and inspire other folks to to 
to run good. at lower levels. Great. Well, good luck with that. We've been talking with uh, Rob Barron. He's a member of the uh, Des Moines School Board and also with the Latino Political Network. Good luck with that, Rob. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate it. And when we come back, folks, we're not going to stray far from the current topic. We're going to talk about the ICE raid in Mount Pleasant, which um, which uh, arrested, what, 32 people and has created a lot of angst and a lot of hardship. And we'll analyze that with Sandra Sanchez with the American Friends Service Committee when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. All right, so later in the program, we're going to talk about the First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March. We'll also talk about the bogus study that says we should be feeding our babies pureed pork. We'll talk also about how U.S. streets are becoming more deadly, in particular for pedestrians. But first, right now in the studio with me is Sandra Sanchez with the American Friends Service Committee. Uh, Sandra, we saw a rather horrific um, display of uh, anti-immigrant arrogance in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, this past week, and it's got a lot of people pretty upset. That's correct. Yeah, so uh, 30, what, 32 people arrested at uh, a factory where... Well, initially were uh, almost 70. Uh, they were processed inside the plant, uh, according to reports by the police chief or some other people that were inside or outside the the plant. Uh, ultimately, they uh, took uh, someplace else, right. 32 individuals. But uh, it disrupted basically the whole workforce uh, the whole in town. that company. Yeah, correct. And this this surprised me because. Right. Lately, the strategy that ICE has been using has been to target individuals. Correct. Uh, that is you know, correct. Snagging one guy from a one restaurant. One or two. Or, or, yeah, yes. From, yes. Their, from their apartment, maybe their home. Exactly. And so why, why this? This is more reminiscent of the large bust that occurred back in 2008 in Postville. Right. Where over 300 mm -hmm. uh, Latino immigrants, uh, many of them Guatemalan, were, were, were captured. That's correct. So why, why this? I mean, we, I, we thought we'd seen it, and, and none of this is acceptable. It's all problematic, and we'll talk about that. But yes, why, why, why this sudden, you know, movement back to a larger bus? Uh, if you recall, at the time of the Postville bill uh, uh, raid, it was originally. Um, just months later, it was determined that the uh, immigration and customs enforcement wasn't going to keep using those uh, approaches to arrest people. Mm. So it, they went dormant for several years, right. particularly during the Obama administration. Right. Nonetheless, there were tremendous amount of people that were deported as well. However, now with the Trump administration, we are seeing very much more crass uh, approaches to arrests in which uh, basically nobody is safe, You yeah. whether you have uh, documents that prove your citizenship or your Im legal status, immigration legal status in this country. Uh, you would have to carry them with you mm -hmm. in order not to be 
process, as they call it, or arrested. And that is problematic because in this case, as I came to learn later on in one of the community meetings, thanks to a video that was taken by my uh, co-worker, uh, Erika Johnson, it was clear that while they supposedly had an arrest warrant, it's not clear if that arrest warrant was a judicial warrant, mm. number one. Number mm. two, uh, when he was questioned whether or not there were particular names in that list that he referred to at uh, the beginning of the mm -hmm. <laughs> interview or the communication that he was having with the community in Mount Pleasant, mm. uh, later on it was clear that there were no names. They were mm. basically fishing oh, yeah. for people. Yeah, right. And that is absolutely wrong because yeah. that creates a sense of chaos. It is very uh, well, it's scary. Well, and the very whole thing scary. is so disruptive to the community, the family. I mean, there's this one heartbreaking uh, conversation with a, a young boy, a young, you know, uh, I think a high school kid. Yes, who, yes. Who's, uh, you know, his dad was taken. He, 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 he left high school. He, he ran out of school when exactly. he heard it was happening. That's correct. And he got to witness his dad being hauled away in handcuffs. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that story is, is replicated time and time again, not just in this raid, but in the other ones. And, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and, and yet we have, um, we have people who don't kind of appreciate and understand the humanity of the folks who are being affected by this. I want to play a, a short clip from a newscast here where the reporter interviewed a couple um, – a couple just men on the street, literally men on the street, yes. uh, and what they had to say. And I'd love to have your response to that. Let's um, let's hear that clip. Let's stay. Just one second. <laughs> well, we're. Well, I don't think they should be here. I think it's it's a good thing that they're doing that. Iowans like Kendall Lofman say immigrants should come here legally. They shouldn't be up here taking our work and lowering our wages and what our economy is because they're not paying the taxes and they're kind of leeching on society in my opinion. They were here illegally and they broke the law so they should be arrested but deportation should be on a case-by-case -case basis. The raid in Mount Pleasant has left other Iowans feeling uneasy. We like so what, uh, what do you think of, uh, I mean th those are common observations made by people. These these folks are taking our jobs. They're leeching off society. How do you respond to that? God Almighty! Well, that shows how uh, how poorly informed people are about the immigration system and how it is not working for people to come here legally, even if they try and try their hardest. And third is the rhetoric that they have been hearing constantly by uh, the Trump administration and by many of the officers that are doing this kind of work, uh, as well as other officials that are repeating and repeating constantly this uh, idea of criminalization of immigrants yeah. without understanding that entering the country illegally is a civil crime. It's not like you a committed offense, a, right. a horrible right. crime that should be uh, dealt with in the judicial yeah. system. So uh, to me, that is showing simply how uh, ill-informed and ignorant people yeah. are who are making such comments. What bothers me is that, that folks don't realize that uh, people coming here illegally are fleeing 
horrible conditions in their home countries. Not only that, but there are also many people who are coming here for family reunification sure. as well. Yeah. And it's, it's inhumane, actually, to having to wait 15 20 years, 20 years plus in order to reunite with a family member that is immediate family member, whether is, a parent, a mother, a sibling. Uh, it, it, is, it is inhumane to do and, that. And I imagine we have data and studies that show just what kind of impact immigrants have on the workforce. What about yes. the allegation that they're taking our jobs? Oh, that, really, our jobs. They, that really infuriates me, I'm sorry to say, but it really infuriates me because if they are working, all those workers were paying taxes because they are deducted from yeah. their paychecks. So when the guy says they're leeching, they're leaching off Exactly. Us. Number uh, one. Yeah. Well, no. they're, they're not only paying taxes, they don't collect Social Security. That's co <laughs> not only that. They, they, ca they cannot <laughs> receive any kind of services right, okay. from uh, the uh, contributions they make to the system. Mm. Uh, secondly, they are not taking any jobs from anyone because I have heard time and time again from employers that they are seeking to fill those jobs by Americans, and they don't want to take them, those jobs. Right. The only people that they can recruit mm. are immigrants. Why? Because it is hard work. Yeah. It yeah. is very uh, taxing on, on the body, mm -hmm. and oftentimes they don't have all the benefits that other jobs have. Right. And people who don't have all the English skills or who are willing to take any kind of job in order to provide for their families, well, those happen to be immigrants and refugees. Yeah. Well, we've got, to, we've got to run to a break, uh, Sandra. I really appreciate you joining sure. us. And, um, and again, I, I hope that people will take the time to get to know folks who are affected by this, not just those who are you know, subject to deportation, but the family members, the community. I was exactly. very impressed with a, a former legislative colleague of mine, Dave Heaton, Republican to the core, who spoke very strongly about how hard this is on the community. It is absolutely. It's true because, as you know, the possible rate, the anniversary was uh, just this Saturday. That's right. And that community still hasn't recovered yeah, since 2008 10 years ago. from that rate. This, yeah. A similar situation is going to happen, sadly, mm. in Mount Pleasant, yeah. and that shouldn't happen. And my understanding is like, is costing to taxpayers mm -hmm. uh, the, the arrests, right. the incarceration, the deportation, okay? It is costing also to taxpayers to help the families impacted that stay here and for the benefit yeah. of what? Yeah. What are we getting in return for all that money that is spent doing suffering yeah. Tremendous suffering and... Uh, well, it's part of the whole strategy of divide yeah. and conquer. Exactly. You know? and, and we uh, shouldn't fall for it, really. No, we shouldn't. Sandra, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Sandra Sanchez, folks with the American Friends Service Committee, uh, an organization that's been active on this issue for a long time and specifically involved with the uh, hardship being felt in the community of Mount Pleasant after the recent ice raid there. For those listening on our community-owned stations or who are going to check out the podcast later on the Fallon Forum website, we're going to go on to – we're going to continue to discuss a couple things. The um, bogus study that says we should be feeding our babies pureed pork. We'll talk about that and a bunch of other um, faux pas uh, among the uh, mainstream media. We'll also talk about how U.S. streets are becoming less and less friendly to pedestrians. But right now, I want to welcome uh, Finton Mason to the program. Finton is um, a recent graduate of Grinnell College. Right. And he's working with Bold Iowa on 
the uh, f- uh, the First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March. That's coming up in September. Yeah, so I'm helping right now make a promotional video to both promote the march and explain the lawsuit that's currently in effect with the landowners um, along the route of the pipeline. And the idea to uh, to promote the march with a video ahead of time, where did that come from? Well, last year when I found out about the march that they did last year, um, I joined it for one day. And before that, leading up to the march, there was a an attack video put out on Facebook that reached the communities before the word from the official march group reached the communities. Right, yeah, and some of the words used in response to that video were words we can't say on this program. It was pretty nasty. <laughs> thanks, I remember FCC. That. Yeah, thanks, FC. Well, yeah, but, uh, yeah, so the idea was that, um, I guess, that, you know, it didn't, um, somebody else defined who marchers were. Right, yeah, and it was, uh, what did you say? It was, it was Tiger Swan. Tiger Swan, who was the security firm hired yeah. by, they're, they're they're kind of mercenaries. They got they they cut their teeth uh, in the Middle East. Um, they have a very warlike approach to their security services. And uh, Energy Transfer Partners hired them to spy on uh, pipeline opponents to infiltrate uh, different elements of the pipeline movement. Mm-hmm. And then apparently to do videos that uh, that maligned uh, Native Americans and anybody involved with opposing the pipeline. Yeah, and I will say it was scary being on the march just for that one first day because we had so many people drive by honking at us who had obviously seen the video and were afraid of us for no reason. We were just, like, trying to talk to people. They're flipping us off. Yeah, flipping us off. It was, yeah. just, it was scary. And and then the, the night that we got there and camped in Deep River with the Confederate truck. and Confederate flag. Yeah, the Confederate flag, right, yeah. parked there. So the goal with this video is now to be sort of ahead of – any attack that might come at us, which I don't know if you foresee happening, but <laughs> I I doubt it right now. But who knows? Okay. Yeah, who knows? You, just you know, never know right? it's really hard to say. But um, but it's really it's a good idea to introduce yourself to a community before you walk through exactly, it. <laughs> yeah. So the hope is that the people that need to see this video the most see it. So I'm trying to make it in a way that it's very very basic the way we explain what's going on and that people you know, who may not be connected or, like, concerned about the environment in ways that we are can understand and get on board with our message, basically. Yeah. And it'll be a, an, an eight-day march from uh, Des Moines to Fort Dodge following – for about half of that following the uh, the path of the pipeline. Yeah. And going through a lot of small communities where uh, – well, you know, I mean, I mean, these communities, people have heard of the pipeline for sure. Mm, right. Um, but they might they, – they still might not be familiar with – a, a lot of the, you know, the, the the people involved with the with the march. I mean, the goal, you know, maybe say a little bit more about the name, the farmer, the First Nation farmer. Why is why is it called that? Yeah, well, this year uh, we're working a lot more with First Nations. So, um, for example, Indigenous Iowa, the group that's also supporting the march, is um, uh, going to be helping a lot with the organization there. And really, when we want to, we had a lot of. I know you brought a lot of. Um, Native people on the march last year, but this time around they're taking more of a leadership role in organizing the march. So I think that's really important, bringing their um, concerns about stolen land together with farmers' concerns about the pipeline being sort of stolen land from them. So it's it's unique issues to both groups. Yeah, there was a, a farmer in uh, uh, along along the route that I met mm-hmm. who um, is as conservative as they get. Um, 
very libertarian. His kind of conservative brand is more the libertarian uh, perspective. But he said without a without, – I didn't bring it up. He brought it up. He said, you know, I feel this is, this is probably how Native Americans feel. Uh, they're, they're coming in and taking my land against my will. And that's what happened to, you know, Native Americans. Yeah, yeah, which if you so, had told me that a conservative said that before I heard of this, I, I wouldn't have believed yeah. it. It's like I, I didn't think those two things could go together. <laughs> well, I think it's part of our challenge. I mean, earlier in this program, we talked about the challenges that Latinos face, and the and you heard some of the um, comments, uh, you know, demonizing immigrants, yeah. uh, taking our jobs, uh, leeching off society, mm-hmm. breaking the law. They ought, to, they ought to be, you know, it just the the, the truth is that. The 90-plus percent of us who are struggling to get by have a lot more in common than any of us do with that top echelon, that, right. that thin upper crust. Yeah. And, and, and the same with it, and the same with, with farmers and landowners, whether they're affected by a pipeline or, or some, other, you know, some other development issue uh, or just um, poor agricultural policies. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a lot more in common with the Native communities that called this land home for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that that attack video was um, by Tiger Swan last year was obviously just put to protect the interests of the pipeline. And the but it people. worked. Unfortunately, it, it worked. Work, yeah. It worked. It people bought of, it. Yeah. People bought it. I know. It's so easy for people to believe that someone who is different from them is the real enemy. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, and again, the first segment of this program, we talked with uh, with uh, Demita Brown about the uh, freedom. The uh, Freedom School 360, mm. which tries to bring together people from lots of different uh, perspectives, and uh, I mean, folks uh, who have suffered environmental injustice or uh, civil rights violations, whether they be Latino, African American, Native American, LGBT, mm-hmm. uh, to try to you know have more dialogue so you can identify that common ground and not be fooled when someone comes at you and tries to divide you. I mean, that's, that's the historic approach to conquering and, dom- you know, and dominating of people is to create an enemy. Mm-hmm. They did it in Ireland. Yeah. They, they, they dispossessed the Scottish of their land and sent them over to Northern Ireland, gave right. them some land there, and suddenly they became the en- enemy of the native Irish Catholic population. Yeah, you know? exactly. They've done, done it in India with uh, Muslims and, and Hindus, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're trying to do it here. Don't let them do it. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, and more, we just have to keep bringing our, our concerns together. Like, it, it tends to, activism tends to be sort of spread out amongst issue groups. And I think more than ever now, we're, like, coming more together. And so that's what I want my activism to reflect. So in, in terms of your role as the videographer for promoting uh, the farmer, yeah. the, the First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March, what what do you... What, what what can people expect to see when that video is actually out? Yeah, well, I mean, it'll be a very clear breakdown of the um, what the lawsuit is going to be, and also it'll voice some of the the farmers who are affected by the um, the pipeline going through their land and the damage that it caused and the process that they went about it illegally. And so it'll it'll give a humis- humanistic side and a story to that. Good, and look forward to it. And you have yeah. a you have a, a promotional page for this coming out. Uh, yeah, I, I, we, we're crowdfunding right now because um, we need some some funds to produce this video, and so you can find that. You just go on the Bold Iowa Twitter; it, it's it's tweeted or or the Facebook, and you'll find it. All right, great. Well, hey, Finton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Finton Mason, folks, a recent Grinnell grad who yeah. uh, who uh, is uh, working with uh, with Bold Iowa and the Climate March and Indigenous Iowa on the. 
First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March coming up September 1st through 8th, uh, going from uh, Des Moines to Fort Dodge. Uh, an eight-day walk, <clears throat> walk or march, what are we going to call it? Um, march, I guess, of, uh, of about 11 or 12 miles a day. <clears throat> All right, so uh, for those who are listening on our community-owned stations or who are going to tune into the podcast, uh, stick around. We gotta, we're going to talk about some of the incredible stuff going on in the newspaper. Um, it will blow your mind to see what they're doing and what they're not saying. We'll also talk about how American streets are becoming less so and less friendly I'm to pedestrians. Uh, thanks to my producer, Maddie Kane, to knows what the fates have in store from their vast, mysterious sky. Welcome back to the program, folks. This is Ed Fallon with you as we... Well, it's hard to know where to begin. I, I will say very broadly that my concerns about corporate domination of the media continue to grow. <laughs> and uh, an article this week about, <clears throat> again, front page of the Des Moines Register the uh, newspaper that Iowa counts on, as it used to be called, is called Pureed Pork for Babies? Question mark. New study touts benefits of meat. So this is about feeding babies pureed pork and beef beginning at five months. And the reason you want to do that is because babies in this study, I assume they didn't volunteer, babies in the study grew by more, more, more than an inch over babies that consumed simply, quote, dairy. I don't even know what they mean by dairy. Is that mother's milk? <laughs> if, if so, that's pretty bizarre. Do they mean cow's milk? Do they, do they mean formula? I don't know what they mean by, quote, dairy. But I, I want, what I want you to focus on is the headline, pureed pork for babies, new study touts the benefits of meat. Not till you get to the page eight in the second part of the story. And, you know, again, most people are going to see that. They're going to read the headline and say, oh, good, i got to feed my kids some meat. Uh, and i got a puree at first, so I've got to get a blender. But what they don't go on to read is that this study was done at the uh, University of uh, Colorado. And um, it involves 64 babies. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of credible study looks at a universe of 64? But the best part of it is yet to come. The study was supported in part, and I wonder how big of a part, by the National Pork Board. Okay, so if, you know, if, if I, basically, if you want to get somebody to believe something and you want research to support that, you can go out and buy that research. Yeah, I, I, could, I, could, I could find, any, I could find um, evidence of the existence of uh, aliens at the Iowa State House. <clears throat> I could probably prove that with the uh, right kind of study. You know, um, it's just incredible to me that uh, that this is considered front-page news uh, and that the headline would be basically misleading. Yeah, they put a question mark after pork for babies, <laughs> but then the subheading is new study touts benefits of meat, no question mark. And the first sentence, a new study shows that babies fed pureed pork and beef beginning at five months grew nearly an inch more than babies eating dairy. This is such such ridiculous drivel that I can't understand how it finds the light of day anywhere, let alone the front page of a newspaper, until you realize that that newspaper is part of the Gannett Network. And Gannett, being a massive corporation, is basically in bed with other massive corporations, especially big ag-type corporations. 
So, um, <clears throat> just a quick reference to one of the other big corporations that the Des Moines Register just loves is Hy-Vee. Now, Hy-Vee is a big grocery chain. They've been very effective, in fact, about, you know, dominating markets. One story in from Southern Iowa years ago, <clears throat> they were able to put the other local groceries throughout a business, at which point they jacked up their prices, at which point community members got outraged and pooled their resources to open a locally owned store. But the register just loves Hy-Vee, even though Hy-Vee, you know, again, the register purport, you know, purports to be very open-minded and opposed to discrimination against the LGBT community, uh, against the immigrants. And yet they support Hy-Vee because Hy-Vee advertises with them and Hy-Vee advertises on some of the most horrific talk show programs in the nation. They, they're, they're, even the, they're even the lead advertiser on some of the worst showing shows on stations like WHO. So, <clears throat> and again, I, I understand a relationship with a client because we do that on this show, but we're very meticulous. We have very, very high standards. You can't be a client that hates the GLBT community <laughs> or that even advertises, if, if that's what you advertise, I don't want anything to do with it, you know? Um, so we've got to be, we've got to be selective about who, you know, who we support in the business community, uh, both in terms of our professional relationships, but also in terms of how we interact with our own, you know, our own cash, our own dollars. So um, in one day in the Des Moines Register, we had a columnist who, um, Dan Finney, who's noted for written column after column after column about his battle with obesity to basically label anybody who wants to raise food in the city as a hobby farmer. I mean, there are plenty of people in Des Moines raising lots of food that aren't hobby farmers. He dismisses them and says, urban farmers believe their eggs taste better than the dozen I buy at the grocery store for about $2. Well, actually they do. Sorry, Dan. And um, he goes on to uh, just basically make it clear that he is, um, he's learned nothing from all the therapy and and assistance he's gone through in trying to get over his um, his uh, obesity problem. And I commend him for trying, but I can't understand how the disconnection occurred. Where did he not understand that maybe his obesity problem has something to do with eating bad food? So uh, in the same days we had that article, we had an article about how last month was the coldest April in the U.S. in 21 years, with not a mention of the fact that climate change is a big part of why that's happening. We had an article about how the outlook for the Colorado River is remaining uh, really, um, really serious. How water is going to be problematic for 40 million people. And then in that article, global warming was mentioned as a very, very small afterthought. It's a contributing factor. You know, and yeah, there are other problems relating to the Colorado River. The other article that, again, totally didn't get it was um, the article about the $3.4 billion dollar billion dollars that the state wants to spend on expanding roads, improving. They say improving, they mean expanding roads. And without any ability to connect the fact that, that expanding roads leads to more traffic, leads to more fossil fuel consumption, leads to more problems for people getting their water from the Colorado River, leads to more problems um, for uh, the kind of polar vortex we saw here, in, saw here in the upper Midwest this year, and leads to more problems with the way agriculture happens so that folks like Dan Finney We'll continue not to understand that there's a connection between health risks and eating the right kind of food. Anyway, 
That's my rant when it comes to the corporate media. We'll be back in a minute with a little conversation about how walking is becoming more dangerous That's on U.S. Street. Howdy do me. Just As someone who has walked oh, close to, I, I don't know, three or 4,000 miles on busy streets, uh, probably more than that, I'm very sensitive to the concerns that a lot of pedestrians have about traffic and about safety. And you would think that with more and more people walking, there would be better policy decisions that help protect pedestrians. And yes, some of that is happening. I, I know that there are cities around the country that are uh, approaching you know, transportation planning with what's called a, a complete streets, where the street is, is friendly to the pedestrian, to the bicyclist, to the bus, to the car. Despite that, Pedestrian fatalities have skyrocketed since 2009. So in the last nine years, we've seen an increase of 46% in, the ter in terms of the number of pedestrian fatalities. Last year, actually no, in 2016, sorry, 6,000 pedestrians died, were killed by motor vehicles, either on highways, roads, or alongside them on sidewalks. Uh, or, or on um, on uh, shoulders. And to put that in perspective, this article by Eric Lawrence and Chris Woodyard um, puts that in perspective. Uh, that's nearly twice the number of deaths that were tied to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And more Americans have died as they walked than died in combat in Iraq each year since 2003. You would think this would be a national, you know, emergency wake-up call at this point. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not happening yet. So uh, one, uh, one man quoted in this story, Dave Harkey of the Insurance Institute, he's the president of the Insurance Institute, says that one reason is that SUVs have an outsized impact on pedestrian fatalities. It's because they are designed, uh, they have higher front ends, meaning their visibility is compromised, uh, and um, there's more of them. And again, as, you know, as we continue to put our heads in the sand when it comes to climate change and the consumption of fossil fuels, we're going to see more people buying SUVs, buying large pickup trucks. And, uh, you know, I don't know about your community, but I'm distressed at how many people are allowed to get away with driving badly, whether it means the, the inability to understand the importance of a turn signal <laughs> or the willingness to drive fast, or as we discovered, <clears throat> as we talked about earlier in this program on a different segment, how some drivers just don't seem to mind buzzing you if they don't like what you're doing. So, yes, it's, it's dangerous out there if you're a walker. Uh, pay attention. Uh, keep your head up. And uh, at the same time, push for policy changes that are going to make the streets safer for all of us.